Well, good morning. My name is Matt Farlow, and uh, man, I am excited to be here with you. We've already had a great morning. Our amazing worship team led us in some amazing worship. Man, that was so good. I know down the hall, our boys and girls are getting taught the truth of Jesus and having a blast at the same time in our kids' ministry. And y'all, how awesome is it that nine students are being baptized this morning? I mean, it's just amazing. The Lord is at work. I'm excited to get into the Word of God together with you this morning, so let's go. If you've got a Bible or a device, I'd love for you to uh, turn or tap your way with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, that's where we're going to be this morning. Mark chapter 4. Every week when we gather together as God's people, there is one thing that we want to do. One main thing we want to do each week when we gather together, and that is to lift high the name of Jesus, okay? That's the main thing we want to accomplish when we gather here as God's people at fellowship is to lift high the name of Jesus. And last week, our senior pastor, Jason Cook, did a phenomenal job lifting high the saving grace of Jesus, the sin-forgiving, the shame-erasing grace of Jesus. If you missed last week, if you were out of town or whatever, do yourself a favor and go online and listen to it. It was outstanding. He dropped a quote from Richard Sibbs, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And man, that has blessed me all week long, okay? This morning, my goal, what I'm going to endeavor to do is to continue to lift high the name of Jesus. And whereas last week the focus was on Jesus' saving grace, this week the focus is on his sovereign power. The fact that Jesus is in control of all things. There's nothing that could ever happen in the universe, in the world, or in our lives that is not under his perfect sovereign control, okay? And here's the truth. Because of who Jesus is and because how he operates, his saving grace and his sovereign power are two sides of the same beautiful, infinite, and majestic coin, for Jesus, it's not one or the other. He doesn't have to choose to do saving grace or sovereign power. He is both at the same time. And because of that, we can find rest in the presence of Jesus because of his saving grace. And we can find rest in the presence of Jesus because of his sovereign power. In other words, Jesus is a sovereign savior. And because that's true, there's no reason for us to fear. Whenever we find ourselves in a place in life where we feel like we're out of our depth or we don't know what to do, we can trust that Jesus is there with us and that he will give to us everything we need to make it through that moment. Jesus is a sovereign Savior. So this morning, I want you to look with me at this sovereign Savior as we read from Mark 4, starting in verse 35. The scriptures say that on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. 
And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that this morning you would meet us here in this place and you would help us through the power of the Holy Spirit to understand these truths and to know how we can put them into action in our lives in order to trust and obey you. We love you. And we thank you that you have loved us first in Christ. It's his name, his name we pray. Amen. A few weeks ago, my wife Jen and I spent some time over the 4th of July weekend with some good friends, Jeff and Courtney Osborne. Uh, Jeff and Courtney and us, we've been in community group before. We're partnering together with them in ministry right now. And so we were enjoying a great time together, just eating and hanging out. And all of a sudden we looked over and noticed the most beautiful sunset we have seen in a long time. It was one of those times where the sun was low in the horizon, just massive, right there against the horizon, perfectly round, and it was going from one shade of yellow to orange to red. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? It's just unbelievable. Stopped us in our tracks. And Jeff, because he's Jeff and he's awesome, he reminded us that the sun is one of an estimated 200 to 300 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. That's a billion with a B. And it's estimated because the astronomers can't even count all of them. And then Jeff took it up a notch, and he said that the Milky Way galaxy that all those billions of stars and us call home is one of a... And here's what's even more amazing is to realize that all of those stars, all of those galaxies, all of those planets didn't just happen. They were created when God spoke them into being with a word. The scriptures say that God not only created all of those stars, but he upholds them by his power, and he knows every one of those billions of stars by name. Y'all, I can't even remember the name of somebody I just met. And God is like, oh, hey, Orion, what's up, Canis Major? He knows them all. And I don't know what happens to you when when those truths begin to kind of go through our mind, for me, there's two things that happen almost simultaneously. The first is that there's this incredible shrinking feeling in me, and I realize how small I really am. All of the things that matter so much to me, all the things that concern me, my, my environment, my relationships, all seem so very small 
compared to the magnitude of the heavens. But even as there's this shrinking feeling in me, there's this expanding feeling of how incredibly, unbelievably, infinitely awesome is our God. When we consider the stars and the planets and the galaxies, we are left to look at our God with our mouth dropped open in complete and silent awe. Maybe you've had a feeling like that as you've gazed on the Rocky Mountains or you've looked with wonder at a newborn child. Those are moments where God blesses us with some perspective Perspective that it's not us at the center of the universe, but it's God. And he is in control of all things. As we come to our text this morning in Mark 4, what we're seeing here is a real-time event where the disciples, these men who have been called to follow and learn from Jesus and who will eventually be deployed to represent him in the world, they're confronted with one of these perspective-changing, heart-affecting, faith-developing moments. All right, And up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been bouncing back and forth. He's been, he's been teaching kingdom truth to his followers, and he's been demonstrating different aspects of the kingdom, giving glimpses of the kingdom as he has uh, demonstrated his works. And as he's taught, as he's healed the sick, as he's given freedom to those who are oppressed by demons, the crowds around Jesus grew and grew and grew. And on one particular day, after a long day of ministering to an enormous crowd of people, Jesus says to the disciples, hey, it's late, it's getting the dark, uh, how about you and I get in the boat and we'll go to the other side, okay? Mark records for us what happens next. It says, leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. For the background here, you need to know that the Sea of Galilee, where all this is happening, sits almost 700 feet below sea level. About 30 miles to the north is Mount Hermon, and that's 9,200 feet above sea level. What's the big deal about that? Well, the cold, dry air from Mount Hermon is constantly clashing with the warm, humid air coming up from the Sea of Galilee, and the result is that there are constantly violent thunderstorms and strong winds that happen in this area. For the disciples, the people who were there with Jesus, they were familiar with this. Some of them were fishermen, and they spent day in, day out in a boat on these waters. They had lots of skill, lots of experience. Um, they knew about the storms that would happen on the Sea of Galilee. But for these disciples, this night was different. This storm was so bad, so intense that they, to a man, were scared to death, literally. They found themselves in the middle of a Cat 5 hurricane, and they thought, 
we're dead. How do I know that? Look at what they say to Jesus. This is in verse 38. They found Jesus in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they wake him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Don't you care? I don't know about you, but when I read these words, I don't get the sense from these guys that they thought it was just a possibility that they may die. It sounds like they were convinced. And so they grab Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, don't you care that we're about to die? Does it even matter to you? Let me pause for just a moment and acknowledge that I'm betting that not many of us have been on a boat in the Sea of Galilee during the middle of a violent storm. Anybody? In the first service, there was one, all right? So you always have, always going to be one, all right? Not many of us have been in there. But all of us know what this is like. We all know what it's like to be going through life and just kind of sailing smoothly along. And all of a sudden, the bottom drops out. A storm comes, and we find ourselves overwhelmed. We find ourselves in a hard place. It feels like God is nowhere to be found. We think maybe we're going to be crushed. Our desperation is sky high. And many of us have wondered, just like these disciples, where are you, God? Have you forgotten about me? It feels like you're a million miles away right now. This is real for us. This is real for me. I've been there. And so what did Jesus do? What did he respond? How did he respond when these disciples woke him up? It says in verse 39, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. Rebuke is what you do to someone or someone, something that is beneath you. Our family has a dog named Marley. And Marley has this annoying habit. Whenever anybody comes to the front door, she barks like crazy and will not stop. Even if it's me and I come to the front door, she barks like crazy and she will not stop. And so we rebuke her and we say, quiet, stop it. And so when Jesus stands up in that boat and says to the storm, peace, be still, it's as if Jesus is addressing a barking dog and he is the master. There's no chants, there's no incantations, there's no, in the name of so-and-so, I command you, Jesus just says, quiet, be still. And it says the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Not only did the wind stop immediately, but that turbulent, raging water became as smooth as glass instantly. If you've ever been on a cruise before or you've rented a house by the ocean in the middle of a storm, you would know that even if the winds could stop just like that, it would take hours for turbulent, raging water to calm down. And when Jesus says, be still, it happened in an instant. 
incredible. Now, I need to pause here for just a moment and let you know I've got a confession to make. Over the years, I've read this passage many times. I've even preached from this passage before. And um, for a long time, I think I looked at this episode through a very me-centered lens. A very me-centered lens. Let me explain what I mean. For someone with a me-centered perspective, the most important thing is me. No, no real surprise there, right? It's about me. It's about my comfort, things working out for my benefit, everything happening in ways that are good and smooth and easy. That's a me-centered perspective. And when I would come to this text, it was easy for me to look at it through that lens and conclude, well, sure, there are storms that are going to happen in my life just like everybody else, but I can count on Jesus. He'll take care of everything that's hard, and we'll get back to smooth and easy and, and normal. It'll all work out. I may not have articulated it like that, but I'm just being honest. My default perspective was that it was about me. And Jesus' job, well, he was just there to calm the storms that were upsetting me. Again, I'm just being honest here. But I have a sneaking suspicion I'm not the only person here who goes through life with that me-centered perspective. It's a very common struggle but here's the deal. Storms do happen. And we can and we should look to Jesus to get us through those storms. But here's the bottom line. This text is not about me. This text is not about you. It's just not. This text and the rest of this book is centered on Jesus. He's the focal point. It's about him. And we get a glimpse of that in the question that Jesus asked the disciples next. I like to imagine that these disciples were standing there in that boat, mouths dropped open. They're probably still breathing a little bit heavy because five seconds before, they had been in the middle of the most violent storm they've ever experienced. And now instantly it has become still. There's not another sound except for the drip, drip, drip of the water coming from their clothes that were soaked through. And in that silence... Jesus says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus' question is designed to take those disciples there in that boat and the disciples here in this room somewhere. And where he wants to take us is to see ourselves and our lives through a perspective that's not centered on me, but is centered on me. On Christ. This is the thrust of the passage. Jesus is demonstrating that he is sovereign and in control of all things. That's the main point, the thrust of this passage. Jesus is demonstrating he is sovereign and in control of all things. And our response, especially in the storms, is to trust him. 
to trust him. You may be in a storm right now. Something has happened that has caused unbelievable upheaval in your life or in the life of someone you love, your spouse, one of your kids, or a friend. That job that has been so steady and you've benefited from for so long suddenly doesn't seem so steady anymore. Maybe a doctor came into the room and pulled their stool up close to you, looked you in the eyes and say, you know what, the results came back and it's not what we were hopeful for. The storms that we encounter can take many, many different forms. And just like these disciples, we can be undone, overwhelmed, filled with great fear. Again, the thrust of this passage, the truth we must take hold of, is that Jesus is sovereign. He is in control of all things. And we can trust him. Jesus said this in John 16.33, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying to his followers, when you find yourself in a storm, find your shelter in me. Now, all of that, may sound a bit basic, a bit elementary. We can be like, yeah, man, I get it. Uh, Jesus is powerful. He's in control. Um, I need to trust him. Got it. Can we just move on to something else? Before we do that, I want to slow it down and take a closer look at what's really going on here. I think that there's some profound lessons here that we need to understand, Okay. Um, I want to warn you that some of what we're about to talk about could be pretty challenging, but I promise you that what Jesus is, is delivering to us here is incredibly comforting. So let's go back to the beginning of the episode. Let's go back and consider the situation these disciples found themselves in. Again, they've been with Jesus for a long day of ministry. Um, as night is approaching, Jesus says, hey guys, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. Um, So what do they do? Well, you can see it there in verse 36. It says, In leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. I admit I may be reading a bit into it, but when I look at these words, the image that comes into my mind is that these guys saw things as completely ordinary. Nothing abnormal at all. Just like they had done a million times before, they loaded up everything in the boat And they set off. These guys have a lot of experience in a boat and a lot of experience on that water. And I feel like they would have noticed if there were some signs they could have observed that would say that there's a storm coming. Um, The impression I get from these words is that their assumption was that this was just going to be a smooth night cruise across the Sea of Galilee. But as we know, that's not what happened Uh, A storm comes up. The scriptures say it was a great storm. In the Greek, the word is mega. We know what that means, right? We don't have to be told what that means. This mega storm comes upon them, seemingly out of nowhere, takes them completely by surprise. But check it out. The storm may have surprised the disciples. 
It may have caught them off guard, but it did not surprise Jesus. He knew. He knew. Theologians use a lot of big words to describe God and his character. Words like immutable or transcendent or eternal. There are many wonderful aspects to God's character. This morning, I want to focus on two of them. The first one is this, that God is omnipotent. Somebody say omnipotent. Omnipotent means that God's ability and power are infinitely perfect and complete. There is nothing that is greater than his power or control. That's his omnipotence. The second attribute of God I want to look at this morning is his omniscience. Somebody say omniscience. All right. Omniscience means that God's knowledge of all things, big and small, throughout all times and all places is complete. There is nothing that has happened Nothing that is happening now or nothing that will happen in the future that God does not know fully and completely. And like I said, there is much more to God's character than just these two attributes. But when we consider God's omnipotence and his omniscience, when we really look at what's happening here with these disciples and this boat and this storm, we begin to see that Jesus led these disciples into a storm that he knew was coming. It was not an accident. And I know what you're thinking right now, because it's the same thing that I think. The question is, why? Why would God do this? Doesn't God love us? The idea that Jesus would lead his followers into a storm? Are you mad at us? Have we done something wrong? Are you punishing us? Storms that come into our lives are incredibly scary. They can be painful. They can leave behind devastating, incredible loss. Listen, I know of people in this church, I'm looking at some of them right now, who have been recently and in some cases still are in the midst of a storm so intense that to say it is devastating is kind of selling it short. It's putting it mildly. And so the question hangs out there, if God loves us so much, and he does, then why in the world would he lead us into a storm? Why would he not show that love to us by leading us to places in life that are smooth, places that are comfortable, places that are safe? It's a good question. And the answer is that Jesus, for his glory and for our good, has something better for us. Has something better for us. According to our definition, better would include being in a place that's smooth, comfortable, safe, predictable, right? Am I alone in that? We like that. But Jesus 
has something better for us than smooth, comfortable, and safe. What is it? What is it that's better? What's he after? Jesus wants us to know him deeply. He wants us to trust him completely. He wants to develop in us a strong, rich faith, a resilient confidence in him, and a deep well of wisdom. And in order to do those good things in our lives, sometimes he has to take us to some hard places. Listen, we'd all agree that we would prefer, it's easier and more comfortable just to go through life in a way that's super predictable, smooth, and comfortable, right? But just like a doctor sometimes has to hurt you in order to bring you to a place of better health and strength, the God who loves us must sometimes use those storms in our lives to shatter the delusion that we're in control, and to expand our knowledge of God, to extend and deepen our trust in Him. One of my favorite authors is a man named Paul David Tripp, and he speaks to this in words that are challenging, but I think he is right on target. I want you to listen to what Paul David Tripp writes. He says this, He confronts you with your weakness, so you will run to him for strength. He calls you to mountains too big to climb, so that in your inability you will look to him. He leads you to taste failure, so that you'll find your hope in him. He works to prove to you how weak you really are so that you will gladly accept his invitation to enabling grace. Perhaps it's not such a bad thing to come to the end of your rope if at the end of your rope you find a strong and willing Savior. I think he said that extremely well. So let me stop here and just check in. How are we doing? Are you tracking with me? Pretty good. I'm glad that you're doing pretty good because right now I can assure you those disciples there in the boat with Jesus, they were absolutely not doing pretty good. Uh, Take one more quick look at what happened in that text. After Jesus woke up and rebuked the storm, after the storm uh, was replaced with an amazing immediate calm, Jesus says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And it says, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Y'all, were those disciples scared when that storm was raging? You bet. They thought they were going to die. But look what happens after the storm, after Jesus stands up and rebukes the wind and calms the raging sea. The text says they were filled with great fear. It's that Greek word mega again. When the storm was raging, they were afraid. But after Jesus stands up and calms the storm, now they were mega afraid. 
That storm scared them to the point where they thought they were about to die. But when they were in the presence of the power of Jesus Christ to calm the storm, they were flattened. They were undone. More terrified after seeing Jesus' awesome power than they were before. Why? Why were they more scared after the storm was calm than they were before? There's a couple of places in Scripture where there's a person who gets a glimpse of the blinding power and holiness of God Almighty. You remember from the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, he got a glimpse of, of God Almighty. In the New Testament, the apostle John would get a glimpse of God Almighty and all of his majesty. And do you remember how both of these men reacted? Remember what both of them, how they responded? In both places, the scriptures say they were filled with such fear that they fell on their face like they were about to die. They came into the presence of a holy God and they thought, I'm a dead man. These disciples had just come through a powerful storm, the most intense storm they'd ever encountered. And now they're face to face with an even more powerful Savior. That's what undid them. And so it says they were mega afraid. But here's a key difference between this powerful storm and the even more powerful Jesus. And that's this. The storm doesn't love you. The storm doesn't Love you. Remember, right at the beginning of the message, we said that Jesus is both sovereign and Savior. He's not one or the other. He is both at the same time in his sovereignty. This God who created and upholds the universe exercises his perfect power and control over all things, including every detail of those disciples' lives and our lives. He is sovereign over you and the storm you may be in right now or the storm that may await us this afternoon. He is sovereign. And as Savior, his infinite love compelled him. It compelled the Father to send his Son to rescue us so that we might be with him forever. I love the way the Apostle Paul says it in Ephesians 2, verse 4. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus is a sovereign Savior. In every detail of our lives here and in the ages to come, Jesus is actively, faithfully, at work for his glory and for our good. My wife, Jen, and I have three daughters. 
They're a bit older now, 17, 19, and 21. But when they were a little bit younger, uh, when they were young girls, sometimes I, as the dad, had to call them to do something that they really didn't want to do. Maybe they had to stop playing with their toys and come down to dinner. Sometimes I would call them to sacrificially give something up for the purpose of something else. And I had to call them to do something that they didn't want to do. There's one particular moment uh, as, a, as a dad that kind of sticks in my memory, and it's when our youngest, Emma Kate, was going to be going to the dentist for the very first time, okay? Uh, she'd never been before, her sisters had, and so I'm sure they had told her all about the dentist and all about those weird tools they put in your mouth, um, and, and she, was, she was pretty scared. She was not feeling it. She had read books and watch cartoons, and she concluded that the dentist is not somewhere I want to go, okay? So it comes time for the appointment. Jen's getting the other girls in the car. She's asked me to go upstairs and bring him a cake down. So I go up there, and I find her crying. She's crying. She tells me, Dad, I'm scared of that weird chair, and all those tools they're going to put in my mouth. I don't, I don't want to go. Now, believe me, there were plenty of times I totally blew it as a dad, plenty of times. But in this moment, at this moment with my daughter, I had a better perspective than she did. I knew that the dentist wasn't that bad. And I knew that she needed to go to the dentist in order to have healthy teeth and, and not have any cavities. And so I sat down there on the bed beside her, and I looked her in the eyes, and I said, Sweetheart, do you know that I love you? She knew. And then I asked the question that Jesus asked those disciples in that boat, and the Lord is asking us today. I asked her, will you trust me? Do you know that I love you? And will you trust me? Listen, none of us like storms. None of us. They take us out of our comfort zones. They can be incredibly painful. Um, they bring us to the end of ourselves. Sometimes they leave behind unbearable losses. And sadly, I don't have any guarantees for you or for me on how we can have a life that is free from storms. But what is it we can do? What is it we can take from this text this morning that would make it easier for us to trust him in the middle of those storms? How can we take hold of these lessons from Mark 4 this morning and step forward in faith and in obedience? I got three things, and then I'll be done. First is to draw near to him now. Draw near to him now. Make it a priority to spend time with Jesus regularly. Spend time in his word. Spend time on your knees in prayer. Know him and his promises deeply. If you don't know where to begin or how to start again, if you've been stuck for a long time, find one of the elders, find one of the pastors, and we will help you draw near to him now. Secondly, check your focus. Check your focus. Isn't it easy when you're in the middle of a hard, 
uh, challenging storm, when it's confusing, isn't it easy to allow your thoughts to just be consumed with the situation? It's like our minds can be dominated by unanswerable questions, by unpredictable outcomes. And the more time we spend focused on the storm, the more our fears will grow. The scriptures call us to set our minds on things above and not on the things that are on the earth. And sometimes you literally might have to take your mind and shift it I gotta, I gotta take my mind and shift it from focusing on the storm and remember that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and they are safe. I gotta tear my eyes away from the storm and come back over here and realize if God is for me, who can be against me? In the truth and the power and the faithfulness of God and his promises, that's where faith can be found. Check your focus. So draw near to him now. Check your focus. Third, don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. You've heard us talk about this over and over, about the priority for us to be in authentic biblical community with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Simply put, you and I were not created to go through life alone. There is no picture in this book of a healthy, well-formed disciple of Jesus who does not have relationships with other brothers or sisters in their life. It's not there. It's like the Loch Ness Monster, like Bigfoot. They don't exist. We need brothers and sisters in our lives to pray for us, to encourage us, to weep with us, Sometimes we need them to kick us in the tail and take our eyes and focus over here on the truth of God's promises. We need others in our lives. In a few moments, I'm going to pray, and our worship team will come up for one last song. But before we do that, let me just ask okay, with storms and everything that's happening or, or could happen, how do we know? How do we know that we know that we know that God loves us? How do we know? By recalling the fact that Jesus left the glories of heaven and came. And he came not to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down for many. And so we remember the death of Jesus, that he laid his life down for us. And we remember that today through communion. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to this moment to remember Jesus. Remember his love. Remember his power shown in the fact that he gave his life. If you're not a follower of Christ, I would ask that you would just let this moment pass by and consider that this is a moment where those that have looked to Jesus and trusted in him with their lives can remember that moment. The scriptures say that on that night, the Lord Jesus 
took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Scriptures go on to say that in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until he comes. Lord Jesus, we, your children, stand with grateful hearts and in awe of your power, of your goodness, and of your grace. Thank you that you gave your life, that you gave your body, and shed your blood for us, that we might be forgiven of our sin. And you were raised from the dead in order that we might know that our life here on this earth will not end. It will end, but it, our life will not end until we are with you in eternity. And so we thank you and we praise you. You are the sovereign Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen.